Welcome to Free For All Fridays on the iHeartRadio Talk Network. Good afternoon. I am your host, Deb Hutton. This is Free For All Friday. It's an opportunity for us to take a look at the week behind us, usually in federal politics, but sometimes we get into some provincial issues. And joining me this afternoon to do that is Chris Holsky, who is the senior news producer at 580 CFRA in Ottawa, and Carl Dockstatter, who is host of One Dish, One Mike, which airs in Niagara, London, and Windsor, Ontario. Gentlemen, welcome to Free For All Friday. Good afternoon. Yeah, thanks for having us. This is the first Friday of the last month of 2022. Are we prepared to put this year behind us, or was it not such a bad year? Um, I'm going to suggest that it perhaps may be the worst year in Ottawa history, so I'm looking forward (laughs) to the end of it. Wait, it's December already? Oh, my goodness. Exactly. I know. Isn't that crazy? Just a few weeks till Christmas. So this was a big week in Alberta politics. Premier Danielle Smith tabled the uh, what she calls the Sovereignty in a United Canada Act. Smith says that this act is a way of saying no more, Ottawa, and finally standing up for Albertans. She says it's meant to be a, quote, constitutional shield to protect Albertans from federal overreach, and it gives protections for any law, any program, any policy that is deemed by a cabinet minister or the premier, in this case herself, uh, to be harmful to Albertans. Let's hear what Danielle Smith had to say when she introduced this earlier in the week. We've been ignored for 10 years. The uh, the former uh, Premier, Rachel Notley, tried the climate leadership plan to get a better relationship with Ottawa. It failed. Uh, uh, Former Premier uh, Jason Kenney tried to have a collaborative relationship with Stephen Gibbeau in Quebec to get LNG export. It failed. We put forward an equalization referendum to try to start a conversation to change the relationship with Ottawa. It failed. So now we're going to try something new. I think we've got their attention. So she went on to say this, Premier Danielle Smith. A long and painful history of mistreatment and constitutional overreach from Ottawa has for decades caused tremendous frustration for Albertans. In response, we are finally telling the federal government, no more. It's time to stand up for Alberta. And speaking of the federal government, here's what our Prime Minister had to say. about. We're going to see how this plays out. Uh, I'm not going to take anything off the table, but I'm also not looking for a fight. Interesting. So, Chris, I'm going to start with you out of Ottawa. Do you think this will pass? Well, I think it's going to get through the legislature in Alberta. But if it goes any further than that, like stands up to a challenge, I'm not so sure. A lot smarter legal minds are going to be taking a look at this than I am. Whether things, What's happened here is that despite Daniel Smith going out there and saying, well, you know, this didn't work, this didn't work, this didn't work. It doesn't give you carte blanche to all of, a, all of a sudden say, well, then we're going to do what we want. It doesn't work that way, especially within cabinet trying to set its own rules of what it accepts and what it does not accept. There are some safeguards here, allegedly, involving it going through the Alberta legislature, but it seems like this is far too great of a power grab for a premier who has never actually been elected by the province of Alberta in the first place. If you are going to try this, this is something that needs to stand up to a general vote before you even talk about drafting a bill. Well, and of course, she'll get her chance to uh, get that vote sometime in the in the next few months. Carl, uh, what's your thought? I mean, is this likely to be taken, first of all, passed through the legislature, and secondly, likely to be challenged in the Supreme Court? 
I think it's going to be passed through the legislature because even people that opposed it, like even the people that wanted to be the leader of the United Conservative Party opposed this legislation, but they're now whipped. Most of them have cabinet posts and, and they're going to follow along with it. But I, I don't think I don't think that the federal liberals are going to take the bait and nibble on this and give Danielle Smith the attention that that she wants. I think I think she's in some political trouble there in Alberta. I think that this might be a bit of a Hail Mary, but she doesn't have Francois Legault's ability to throw out this type of legislation that challenges the federal liberals and and can sort of raise the ire of, of the public and rally people behind her. So, uh, yeah, I, it'll be challenged by the Supreme Court. It, it probably wouldn't hold up. It doesn't look like good legislation, and I'm not sure that it's great political strategy. Well, let's let's talk about that political strategy, because certainly on the heels, on the day that this was introduced, former Premier Jason Kenney resigned, and he said as he was heading out the door, I am, quote, concerned for our democratic life that it is veering away from ordinary prudential debate towards polarization that undermines our bedrock institutions and principles. Fairly strong language for someone who, who was a colleague of the current Premier, Chris, what is your what is your take on this in terms of politics and whether it is good? Because I'll tell you, I I don't know how strongly Rachel Notley, of course, opposition leader and former premier herself, can stand up against this because Albertans do, I think, share some of Premier Smith's view of their relationship with Ottawa. Yeah, and I th- honestly, I, I think it's fair to have disagreement and be upset if you're in the province of Alberta with decisions that are made by the federal government, but to all of a sudden just declare, hey, we're going to do what we want over in the province and challenge edicts that we find are in conflict is, is not the way that it's going that, that the country works, unfortunately, for Alberta. There does have to be some kind of dialogue, some kind of agreement instead of just, well, for example, a, a, a premier um, making decisions, telling police what to do, what to enforce when this is the same person who recently has been making phone calls to question private businesses about their vaccine practices. When, ter- when it comes to Jason Kenney, um, him resigning, it's a symbolic move. I think he actually should have stayed in the legislature and voted no against this. But then again, he's talking about division, and that would have been division within the party. So maybe I can see his point there. From a federal standpoint, politics-wise, got to give credit to Tim Powers. Spoke with him about this today. Uh, he mentioned that what da- his theory is that Daniel Smith is looking for a fight with Ottawa to improve her chances in the next go-around in the election. And Justin Trudeau, from a federal perspective, is taking the correct step by saying, for now at least, that he's not going to pick a fight. But make no mistake, Danielle Smith, in the next few months before they go to a vote, I expect she is going to try to find something, and Ottawa is going to have to make up its mind one way or another. Carl, what's your take on the sort of raw politics of all of this, both in Alberta and nationally? Well, I think I think Chris hit the nail on the head by talking about how federally the liberals don't have to take this bait at this time. Similarly to the politics in Alberta, I I remember some things coming out of Rachel Notley's mouth when she was premier going, she's NDP and she's this pro pipeline. And it's easy, at least for her to be against the federal liberal government. So strategically, I I think that Danielle Smith is going to have to find another tax, but but she will. She needs something. So don't don't count her out yet. Chris, I'm going to go back to you on this one. I mean, is it possible that instead of just being decent politics or part of Alberta politics, that that this really is a sign that we have some bigger confederation issues in the country? I I did this topic earlier in the week on on the noon show news talk today on uh, um, the iHeartRadio network. And I will say a lot of people outside of Alberta, Ontario, Quebec, or some of our callers and texters said, we have a problem. The, the, the federation isn't working. 
Honestly, I do believe there has been a bit of a shift. And for years, you've heard government leaders at the provincial level complaining about, well, Quebec gets treated different. Quebec gets away with this. And so now we do have a push from other provinces to see, okay, what can we get away with now? That might be the direction that we do see more provinces head going forward. We've had Ontario make attempted uses of the uh, notwithstanding clause, including one that had to recently in a very, in a, very much in a high profile being pulled back. And now we have Alberta with its Sovereignty Act within a, within a united Canada, effectively trying to see also what they can do in the future that's in opposition to Ottawa. Carl, same set of questions to you. What's your thought on this as, as it relates to how our country's working? I, I think it's different. I think Quebec has, has uh, and, and I mean, this is the guy from Ontario, so, you know, what do I really know? But I, I think that Quebec has, has a more formed sense of sovereignty and distinct, unique culture, including including language, which doesn't mean that, that other provinces don't have culture. I don't want to, you know, I don't want to get textures upset at, at you or me or, or anything like that. But but I don't if it's just being done for strategy, I don't think it's going to carry the same weight as as many Quebecers do believe that they're fighting for the life of their culture to move forward. As an Indigenous person, I can I can relate to that sense of urgency in relation to sovereignty. I think playing it for political points just won't have the same heft. Chris Holsky, senior news producer at 580 CFRA in Ottawa, Carl Dockstadter the host of One Dish, One Mike, which airs in Niagara, London, and Windsor. Coming up after the break, we're going to talk a little bit about the Federal Emergencies Act. In some ways, it feels like that was a topic from eons ago, but it was just a week ago today that our Prime Minister wrapped up all of the testimony and was the sort of... uh, Big witness at the end of it. I'm going to tap into the guys on Free for All Friday and ask them their perspective on what the government did or didn't achieve. You're listening to Deb Hutton. This is Free for All Friday on the iHeartRadio Talk Network. Back to Free for All Fridays. On the iHeartRadio Talk Network. Good afternoon. I'm your host, Deb Hutton. It's an opportunity at the end of the week, this first Friday in the last month of 2022, to look back on some of the stories of the past week and talk a little bit about them, spend a little bit more time discussing the repercussions for all of us of so many of these uh, political and current events. Although it was a week ago today, so not technically this week, I did want to take uh, this Friday to look back on the inquiry into the federal government's use of the Emergencies Act earlier this year in response to the so-called Freedom Convoy. Of course, the inquiry wrapped up with our Prime Minister Justin Trudeau doing what I think was a pretty effective job, uh, testifying as to why the government did what it's what it did, testifying uh, as to his view and his government's view of what the convoy was about or wasn't about. And, and I think really just... Uh, doing a a decent job of having people think that he was truly thoughtful and understood the issues. But I want to get a sense from our guest, Chris Holsky, senior news producer at 580 CFRA in Ottawa, and Carl Dockstadter, who is the host of One Dish, One Mike, which airs in Niagara, London, and Windsor, their thoughts, their takes on whether the government actually did what it needed to do. Chris, I'll start with you. I, I want sort of first whether he did what he needed to do and, and his colleagues and the rest of our uh, officials did what needed to be done on a legal and technical basis 
to prove that the Emergencies Act should have been invoked. One of the arguments that you are going to hear from people living within this city at this time is regardless of whether or not perhaps there was a police plan that may have been in place in order to remove the convoy and the trucks and the people who were setting up blockades um, was ready to go or not before the act was invoked. The reality was is that it still hadn't happened yet. And after the act was invoked, that was when things started to change on the streets of Ottawa. Several days later, it was still a massive police operation. The question is, of course, would this have happened without the act's invocation? And I'm not certain that that was completely cleared up during the course of the uh, during the during the course of this inquiry during the six weeks of testimony that we had, I, I believe it's still going to be up in the air for the next several months, and even after we finally get some kind of decision from from the Commissioner Rulo on uh, what exactly the correct course of action was and whether the Emergencies Act was justified in this case. So you're still not convinced the government did what it needed to do from a a legal technical perspective on the act? Yeah, and it's. Honestly, I, I think that uh, my biggest takeaway from the pri- from the prime minister's testimony a week ago was that it was most more beneficial to him than I think than any cause that he did just from his own presentation. Uh, how many times have we seen a news conference involving the prime minister where Justin Trudeau starts off and speaks at length for three to five minutes at a time in a very condescending fashion? As Canadians, <laughs> we unite together. You know what I'm talking about, that whole, you know, set up and You do a teacher, very, like very good job of it. Yes, very, really it's like good. very, it sounds like the teacher or a professor standing, on top of the, standing at the start of a class. And then, then later on when he gets to the question segment, it, it's like, well, uh, we, uh, we, uh, uh, we, uh, we, uh, and, and, sound, <laughs> and, and sounds not completely connected with the issue at hand. This was a change. Honestly, he spoke off the cuff. He spoke uh, very competently. He came across looking very strong, and the points that he made, um, they <laughs> he presented them, I think, very well. Uh, the question is whether or not it's going to be enough to uh, influence uh, the commissioner to make a decision that's in the governor's the uh, the government's favor. And uh, it's like, an, and I'm still I'm still very much unsure about whether the government managed to do this. Now, what about the political piece of this? Because, of course, many of us didn't sit through it day after day. We just had a sense overall what was happening. Do you think the government, from a public relations perspective, did uh, what they should do and, and made Canadians kind of, as I often say, nod their head in agreement? I don't know who wants to start. Maybe Chris? Well, I honestly believe that most people coming into the inquiry had already made up their mind one way or another. I'm not going to say every single Canadian had some kind of decision. They were they were either in favor of the use of the act, staunchly against it, or somewhere in the middle. And I'm still somewhat in the middle on this and I don't and I'd imagine that most people who are still within that uh Within that group, I don't think they've been swayed by anything that happened during the course of those six weeks. And frankly, it, as someone living in Ottawa, the far more interesting stuff from a political perspective was happening during the early days, during the context-gathering stage, when they were talking directly about what was happening in, uh, to, within the Ottawa Police Service and within Ottawa City Hall. And uh, it's been a damaging week for Ottawa City Hall, in fact, for we have a major infrastructure page. Uh, project, our light rail transit system that was ripped apart by the province this week. It has been a rough two months for Ottawa City Hall. 
I actually read that report, but we'll, we'll, we'll save that topic for another day. Carl, what's your thoughts on the political uh, ramifications of not only, I guess, just the prime minister's testimony, which we discussed, but, but broadly speaking, the government's role in, in justifying what they did, not from a legal or technical perspective, but to the general public? Yeah, I think I think there's a bunch of camps and I think you hit the nail on the head when you said that a lot of people went into this and they had their minds already made up that the use of the act was was unjustified. It was justified. They were in support of one group or another. I I actually. Yeah, I mean, outside of being in stitches from Chris's impression of of the prime minister in this segment, uh, I'm going to have to say that I thought the prime minister handled handled everything really well. I I. It, to me, it looked like the police mishandled things, things fell apart, and they had no choice but to go ahead and use the Emergency Measures Act. I don't think the ends justifies the means. And and legally, technically, I think that's what will happen. But on a political level, I, I thought they handled it well. And you you could feel like I don't I don't live in, in Ottawa, but I could feel the collective anxiety of all Ottawa residents for the entire duration of this. And it grew and grew and grew. And it looked like the government came in and said, enough and shut it down. And it's not quite that simple, but I think that may be how the optics bear out. Well, the problem we have is it looks like we're facing round two, a Freedom Convoy 2.0. The federal government's already preparing to deal with with a new convoy that is planned for sometime in February, I think the 17th to the 21st or 22nd of 2023. Uh, The Prime Minister's National Security Advisor told a parliamentary committee last evening that they've begun planning. She testified, uh, her name is Jody Thomas, that officials are aware of a second convoy protest and that they are hoping not to uh have to shut down the city as was the case last year or earlier this year her comments come a week after james bowder who's the founder of a group called canada unity and one of the organizers of last win- winter's uh, protest posted on social media calling for a freedom convoy as i said 2.0 chris i'll start with you as our ottawa ottawa resident do you think we will have learned some lessons collectively particularly i guess i'll point to the police or do you think we you i say we but you in ottawa (laughs) are likely to uh, have a recurrence or a showdown of sorts similar to earlier this year well unfortunately ottawa ended up being a shining example of what not to do that other police services in the country ended up adapting to we had toronto they had a threat of some convoy moving in uh can't get onto our streets or in other copycat demonstrations over in uh, quebec and montreal and ottawa essentially uh, missed the boat on the decision to you know maybe we should block traffic from actually getting in front of the parliamentary precinct and they they did have much better plans that were executed in uh, may and in canada day over the course of this year as for what the federal government is doing good i'm glad they're talking about it this time instead of being caught flat-footed by what happened in february what is going to happen is that after rulo's decision is released you're either going to have a group of convoy supporters who are angered that the emergencies act was justified or that will feel empowered if it wasn't justified and though despite they have this one flawed belief that they shouldn't have been taken off of the streets in the first place uh no you should have been removed. You were removed. That was the right decision, whether the Emergencies Act was involved or not. 
Carl, I'm afraid I'm not going to be able to give you a chance. When we come back after the break, if you do want to answer some of these questions about the convoy, uh, please feel free to do that. I hadn't thought about the timing of the justices report vis-a-vis this second convoy. I guess that's because I don't, I'm not part of the Freedom Convoy, but, convoy, but that in fact may be a, a flashpoint, uh, depending on when we get the report, which we expect is sometime around then. Coming up after the break, uh, we are going to talk about Premier Legault and his plans for 100% francophone immigration. You're listening to Free For All Fridays. I'm Deb Hutton on the iHeartRadio Talk Network. And now more of Free For All Fridays on the iHeartRadio Talk Network. Welcome back. I'm your host, Deb Hutton, and joining me this afternoon are Chris Holsky, who is the senior news producer at 580 CFRA in Ottawa, and Carl Dockstadter, who is the host of One Dish, One Mike, which airs in Niagara, London, and Windsor, Ontario. So Quebec Premier Francois Legault says he will release more details of a plan to address the decline of French in Quebec. But what we seem to know so far is that this plan would require 100% of economic immigrants to Quebec to be French-speaking, or at least open to the French culture. This is particularly an issue in Montreal, where less than 50% of residents are French-speaking on the island. Uh, Earlier this week, Premier Legault spoke with the Montreal Gazette about the need to protect the French language in his province. If we look at the percentage of people speaking French mostly at home, it's 48% on the island of Montreal. So I would like to see that again over 50%. It used to be 60 So I would like to reverse the trend. So, Chris, I'm going to start with you again. Ottawa on the border of Quebec. What's your take on this? You know, I'm honestly surprised that uh, that 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 uh, 48% was the number that he had for for Montreal. If you visit there yeah. as a, someone who speaks English, you wouldn't think that uh, that ha- it's it's really not an issue, right? It's easy to to go in anywhere in Montreal and uh, and speak English. It's uh, I'm I'm stunned by that close to 50% mark. Living in Ottawa, so close to the border, uh, there are several stories that that we cover uh, talking about the size of French and English on a sign, and the we had an instant incident within the last couple of years of a uh, teacher taken out of the classroom uh, for wearing a head covering. And the conclusion that I've drawn, living so close to Quebec for so long, is Quebec is going to Quebec. They are going to do what they can to try to preserve their language, most specifically, and other parts of their culture, and... It seems, especially in recent history with what's been happening with Premier Legault and the several pieces of legislation that have passed, is that they're not really going to be challenged on it. That said, I think that this 100% goal, given that we've seen an increase in targets for immigration from the federal government, is being completely unrealistic. He says that right now it's roughly about an 80% hit rate, but to suggest that 100% of your economic immigrants can speak French, I, I don't think that's even possible. Well, let's uh, listen to uh, Legault. He went on and, and talked about the focus being on newcomers to the province. Immigration is very important, 
And uh, if we continue to have them 50-50, which I mean 50% only speaking French, of course we will continue to see a decline. So it's important to increase the percentage of newcomers speaking French if we want to protect. Uh, and it's a question of survival of our, uh, the language in long term. Carl, I'll let you take this wherever you want. Well, I don't think his rhetoric has to match his actions. And we saw this in the election where Francois Legault had had very selective things to say about about immigrants and capping immigration, but then also recognizing the financial reality of of needing immigration to help the Quebec economy go. I I think that it's more of the same. Don't don't forget that Francois Legault is very popular, and I think he's very popular because he he may surprise us, uh, exhibit a the secularism law right, but then also realizing that that Quebec being secular and how that ties into the cultural quiet revolution and the history history of Quebec. I, I think he's plugged into to what his citizens want. And, and I don't think he cares what we're what we're saying over here in Ontario and in other provinces. Can he do it? Probably not. But do his people believe that he's going to fight trying? That's the important part to Francois Legault. Yeah, I mean, I, I think, Chris, uh, you both said it's for really not likely to be doable. But how else does he get to a number, say, on the island of Montreal, if not through immigration policy, if well, that's his goal? Well, the reality is, is that uh, we've seen Quebec take more desperate measures, I think, honestly, to uh, to try to do things to preserve that language when at, it is happening at a time where that you cannot it's it's become a lot more difficult to control the amount of English that comes into that province because we're beyond the era of you know people just consuming their media through films through television and things that can be translated and that can be done over a period of time. Everything is on the internet now. Everything is on social media. Everything is instant. And Quebec, more than it ever has been before, is being bombarded with the English language. So these kind of reactions and taking more drastic measures is something that, honestly, I I don't find to be completely unexpected from that province. I'm going to switch it up a little bit, Carl, and just sort of ask about what we think will be the likely federal response to all of this. Because... uh, I have a bias that says that our federal leaders, and it's not just the prime minister, but all of our leaders have had a real reluctance to comment, I think, on anything small p political in Quebec. Your thoughts, Carl? Oh, I, I think uh, you stated it very well, a, a bias or a lack of willingness or or not not wanting to do anything to potentially risk votes in a province that that's very vote rich. You know, I hate to be the cynic and say that it's like I feel like that's my political talking point on everything is that like, well, it's all about votes and it's all about strategy. But but there are some things ideologically that that non-Quebec federal leaders should be opposing and and have not touched with a 10-foot pole. I don't see any reason why this would fall into a different category. Chris, your thoughts on the sort of federal, provincial, political dynamic of it? Yeah, the federal government's not going to touch it. <laughs> Absolutely not. I mean, we had a couple of instances involving uh, use of the notwithstanding clause where the prime minister had to be prodded to even make any kind of remark about it. And even then, when he did, he did not specifically target Quebec. But as soon as it came up in Ontario, it was, whoa, whoa, wait, what are you doing? Don't don't touch that. I, I don't expect any federal approach to change here. And yet, Carl, I mean, immigration should be, and I know that it's, it's a bit different in Quebec, but it should be the role of the federal government to say how many, who, where, all those sorts of things. 
Yeah, and I think I think any place else they would. It, I mean, it, it's uh, it's almost comical. Like it's almost comical to watch the federal government. And yeah, I, I'm with Chris. Like I think I think he had a great example that that Trudeau was willing to come right out against Ford and the notwithstanding clause, and would would not again would not say anything about Quebec. I like I I'd like to put together a tape of the federal government stepping over themselves to to not say anything that might risk alienating Quebec votes. It's it's fascinating to watch. Chris, what do you think will be the the political landscape in Quebec over the next couple of years? I mean, you you sort of walked through a litany of things that Legault has been able to do untouched, uh, all with the stated goal of preserving the the French culture in Quebec. Do you think he continues to to be premier? Do you think this continues to be his soapbox? Honestly, I don't think he's done anything that's gone fundamentally against the the wishes of most of the electorate in Quebec at this stage of the game. Like to compare and contrast what's happening in Quebec to what's happened in Ontario. You had two governments that both won strong rant mandates in recent history. Uh, since then, I would say that, you know, in Ontario, Doug Ford's uh, government is more at risk because of pushes towards more privatization of health care and what recently happened with education workers. And I don't think we have seen anything of that ilk whatsoever that has infuriated a large part of the, uh, part of the voter base in Quebec, and I don't see any reason why Legault is going to go down that route yet. I'm just going to stay with Chris for a second. So, so like, you really believe the the Quebec people, even in Montreal, even English speaking Quebecers, are fundamentally with the premier on these on these particular issues that whether they're the secular piece or the language piece that we're talking about now. Well, I don't think that everybody's going to agree with any politician at one time, but still, the majority of well, enough voters, I should say, you got to go by seat by seat. It's still overwhelmingly voted in favor of the CAQ, and and I don't see any of Quebec having changed their mind over the course of the last few months. And I don't. there hasn't been anything that's come up on the horizon yet that could adjust that path. Carl, 20 seconds on the same topic. Uh, same, same. I mean, look look at the numbers. <laughs> they, they, just, they just had an election. The proof is in the votes. Chris Holsky, senior news producer at 580 CFRA in Ottawa. Carl Dockstadter, host of One Dish, One Mic, which airs in Niagara, London, and Windsor, Ontario. They are my guests this afternoon. Coming up after the break, we're going to do a bit of a lightning round and cover a whole bunch of topics that have happened this past week in uh, a variety of provinces and at our federal government. You are listening to Deb Hutton. This is News Talk Today on the iHeart Talk Radio Network. Stay with us. Free for All Fridays continues on the iHeartRadio Talk Network. Welcome back. I am your host, Deb Hutton, and joining me this afternoon is Chris Holsky, who is the senior news producer at 580 CFRA in Ottawa, and Carl Dockstadter, who is the host of One Dish, One Mic, which airs in Niagara, London, and Windsor, Ontario. So in this last few minutes together on Free for All Friday, I like to do something that I call the lightning round, which means I'm just going to fire some topics at each of our guests and uh, get their their initial thoughts on them. They're topics generally that are a little bit more fun, although not all of them today are that much fun, quite frankly. And we'll start uh, with Chris and the Ontario Auditor General's report that is out this week. 
Bonnie Lysak, the Auditor General here in Ontario, said 38% of COVID vaccines were wasted over a four- to five-month period here in the province, and she condemned the government for having a disorganized booking system that meant it was more difficult to get vaccines. Of course, the Auditor General's report covered a whole whack of topics, but I thought the vaccine topic was one that was worthwhile discussing because it certainly something that applied throughout the country. Chris, your thoughts? Are you surprised by this or should we just expect that there is going to be some of this when we were in a pandemic and trying to get shots in arms just as quickly as possible? Well, honestly, if the province was going to err on one side, then having too much supply is certainly better than not having enough supply. So I think that's a non-issue. 38% being tossed out is unfortunate. Those are doses that could have gone somewhere else. But suppose something had gone wrong. Maybe a new, more dangerous variant pops up and we need a vaccine and we need it quickly. Then it's good to have those on hand. As When it comes to the disorganized booking system, yes, there were some issues, especially early on when vaccines first arrived in the country and in Ontario. But When everything was said and done, every person who wanted a COVID-19 vaccine in Ontario got a COVID-19 vaccine, and apparently there were a whole bunch left over, in fact. (laughs) I I forget those early days where you're on your phone or you're on your computer just trying to get anybody and everybody a a, a vaccine or a booster, or it seems like years ago now plus. Carl, this uh, week the government lost a case around its Bill 124, which of course most of us know to be the wage restraint legislation introduced way back in 2019 that capped public sector wages at 1% a year. They have said that they are going to appeal this decision. Just want your general thoughts on it. Uh, Were you surprised by the decision? Uh, Do you think that this is something that the government will be able to appeal successfully. The Premier has also said, Premier Doug Ford, he will not invoke the notwithstanding clause on this. Yeah, I've been I've been following the story this week. I I, I was surprised actually that the court uh, ruled uh, against Bill 124. I'm not surprised that the Ford government is going to appeal it. But what I'm watching right now is the Ford government is doing all those things that I think non-Ford government fans thought they would do in their first term here in their second term. But they're they're wearing this stuff. It looks like the Greenbelt stuff is sticking. It looks like the anti-labor the perception of being anti-labor stuff is sticking. And so in in le- like optically, even if that's the case. I think the government dug in. They don't want to pay out the prospective billions of dollars or be seen as paying that out. And I don't think this would be a good move for them, though. Man, I like the concept of the lightning round, but I hate when I should just keep my mouth shut after a good topic. So <laughs> I got to keep moving. Uh, but there's so much to talk about on that. Chris, are you a soccer fan? What would you, What were your thoughts on Canada showing? We had three games. We lost three games. But it was the first time we made it in almost four decades. It was a different feeling in the country having a team involved in it. But uh, we... Uh... You watch what's happening in the rest of the world while this is going on, and uh, you, you take what's going on with our, what's happening with our country in soccer. Uh, you take a look at what's happening with other countries. It's like the Stanley Cup playoffs with two Canadian teams in it, only multiplied times ten. Other parts of the planet take this a lot more seriously. From a personal perspective, man, it was bad enough watching Canada get eliminated from contention on Sunday, then fail to win a game yesterday. In fact, a fun stat, uh, 50% of Canada's goals in World Cup history have been scored by Morocco. But to see today that the team that I had supported before Team Canada, my beloved Ghana, which I'd supported since 2010 to be eliminated (laughs) as well, this is very difficult to take, Deb. 
I, I, I'm sorry, Chris, and, and, and yeah, I appreciate that you, you joined us nonetheless today, so we do appreciate <laughs> that. Uh, Carl, a pilot project has wrapped up into uh, a study into a four-day work week. It's been declared, quote, a huge for success. Now, it's not necessarily a good program for radio hosts, but do you think it is, as the report calls it, transformative uh, if we were to embrace it more broadly here in Canada? Wait, no, I do. I do think it's a good program for for radio hosts. I, I have it on. <laughs> I have it on good authority that Walter Senzik, the host that's doing the the drive uh, in six ten CKTV, he's in studio now. Can you take over right now, Walt? I'm just going to start my four day work week this week right now. Carl, I need you to say hi to Walter Senzik. Oh, hi, Walter Senzik. Uh, hi, Walter. Oh, do you do you know him? I do. I do. Oh, okay, yeah. No, seriously, he's hosting right after me in like five minutes. He's a great guy. Great guy. We love him in Niagara. Chris. Elf on the Shelf, super controversial, including in my household. We do have one, but some people say it's just bad parenting and it's not good for kids. Your take on our beloved Elf on the Shelf. One of my big surprises when it comes to Elf on the Shelf is I do not understand why more people aren't creeped out by it. Like I, I Personally, I'm not, but normally... It, a doll with that kind of facial expression is going to make some people feel unnerved, but it doesn't appear to bother children. And honestly, that shocks me. <laughs> Listen, I will say uh, it is controversial in our house. My husband thinks it's ridiculous. It just dreads December 1st for that reason. But my eight-year-old, so she's getting to that older age. She got up yesterday morning wearing her Santa hat at six o'clock in the morning because she knew our elf, Christina, was arriving. And if there's not magic in that, I don't know what there is. Carl, Amazon CEO Andy Jassy has said that they won't uh, stop selling a film that has been considered to be anti-Semitic and which gained notoriety after Brooklyn Nets guard Kyrie Irving tweeted an Amazon link to it. Is this something that our corporate entities should be much more vigilant about should we expect them to actually stop selling a film of this nature you're telling me that the giant mega corporation amazon is not going to buckle under public pressure to do the right thing i i am shocked they have a history <laughs> of being reactive and trying to do the right thing on no they're 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 not going to do it they they should do it they should do something they should put something on the film this is this is awful this is terrible but this this is amazon and we're all addicted Chris, a school board in London, Ontario, and in fact, there's one in Edmonton as well, has put uh, a school that flies under the banner of the words Prince Charles on its list of schools that need to be renamed. Is this a good idea or is this just one step too far in our political correctness? Well, there's some contention involved here involving the monarchy and uh, our indigenous communities, but the truth is... The name of the school needs to change in the first place because you named it after Charles when he was prince, and now he's king. So, you didn't have a lot of foresight when you named it Prince Charles. You should have named it Prince of Wales in the first place. What has to happen here is, I don't think there's any issue with the name being put up for consideration. You've got to talk about potential replacements. Uh, king Charles, I think, should be on that list, and it's something that you take to the community for them to decide on which is exactly what is going to happen here, whether or not King Charles is an option, though I guess it's still up in the air. Gentlemen, we got through seven topics. I wish we could have done a couple of more, but well done, my friends. Chris Holsky, Senior News Producer at CFRA in Ottawa, and Carl Dockstadter, host of One Dish, One Mike here in Ontario. Thanks so much for joining me. I'm Deb Hutton. This is Free For All Friday. Thanks to Samantha Pope and Tony Tedesco. 
I'll be back in another week.